I'm Anita Johnson, this week on Making Contact. You see that drum? Let's let the militarized police state know exactly how they feel about that. On June 14th, thousands rallied outside the Brooklyn Museum in New York to demand that black trans lives be included in the larger Black Lives Matter movement to end police brutality. The aim was to bring attention to black trans people who are killed and incarcerated at disproportionate rates. The rally came days after the murder of two black trans women, Dominique Fells of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Rhea Milton of Cincinnati, Ohio. It also followed a rollback of health care protections for transgender or gender non-binary persons. On this episode of Making Contact, we will look at transgender activism and the call for inclusion and intersectionality in the movement for black lives. We'll also meet trans activists in Louisiana who have been organizing against a state law that has been used to unfairly target trans women for decades. Two days after the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, an officer in Tallahassee, Florida, killed Tony McDade, a 38-year-old black trans man. Last month alone, it was reported that a total of eight trans women had been killed. According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, 28 transgender or gender non-binary persons have been murdered this year compared to 27 deaths last year. The violence is pronounced for black and Latina trans women, a group that is especially vulnerable to police brutality and other forms of violence. And sadly too often when we discuss the movement for black lives, all black lives aren't centered in the discussion. Blossom C. Brown, an activist and a black trans woman based in Los Angeles, California, believes that's typically true when it comes to black trans people. We cherry pick which black lives matter you know, at the same time that George Floyd was being killed and we were out protesting in the streets for him, we also had a black trans man by the name of Tony McDade that was also killed at the very same time. And yet we couldn't get people to shout Tony's name for nothing in the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, it was George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, which is, you know, important. But the reality of it is, if you're not willing to shout all Black lives, all the Black lives that have been affected, then, you know, what's the point of a movement? The global uprising for Black lives has largely centered around the murders of Black cisgender men, like George Floyd by police. Black trans activists are attempting to widen the conversation to include Black transgender and gender nonconforming folks as well. Kay Good. A black trans woman based in Atlanta, Georgia, says the key to inclusion is understanding intersectionality within the movement. So when we think about our, why the folks don't show up for black, queer, and trans people is because they don't really, one, feel like they have to, because some people feel like it's a separate issue. Folks don't really have an understanding of like intersectionality. 
so like some people just think like oh when we talk about blackness it's specifically like cishet straight black folks like blackness is intersectional there is no blackness isn't a monolith so like folks need to understand that like black people in general right are under attack when we talk about the state are under attack when we talk about police brutality so folks need to like do some serious work around like unpacking like their socializations and like understanding understanding of what it is to show up when we talk about blm so it's not just like black cishet men it's all black people like all black lives matter Kay's commitment to helping the movement evolve to include the realities of black trans women is key to addressing the lack of equity and equality for all black folks. How so, you might wonder? Well, just think about it. Black trans women are considered to be the most marginalized within the black community. The combination of structural racism and transphobia leaves black trans women most vulnerable. Atlanta-based activist Kay Good says, black trans women exist on the peripheral of harm breaking it down into detail about what harm looks like. It's literally physical violence. So being murdered, being like assaulted, raped. Um, Also talking about uh, the systems, right? So talking about like having resources. So having access to healthcare, having resources to be able to transition safely, whatever that looks like to you. So that can be hormone replacement therapy, that could be surgeries, having enough money to even be able to fund the surgeries that affirm you and your gender and your body. Also talking about housing and talking about like limited resources that trans folks have and like or limited to no resources that trans folks have, the discrimination that folks may deal with who are homeless and going into a homeless shelter and like a black trans woman may be turned away or there have been countless numbers of trans women that have been turned away because of their transness. And then bringing that into people having to do survival sex work and how that puts their lives in danger as well when having to navigate that. It's this type of structural violence that many, if not all, Black trans women are forced to navigate. Take the case of Kayla Moore, a 41-year-old Black transgender woman who died in 2013 after six officers in Berkeley, California, used excessive force to detain her. Or the in-custody death of Leilene Polanco, an Afro-Latinx transgender woman imprisoned on Rikers Island last year after being held on a $501 bail dating back to a 2017 prostitution charge. And in 2020, a week after the murder of George Floyd, a horrifying video of Ayanna Dior, a black trans woman who was brutally attacked in Minnesota, Minneapolis. According to the American Medical Association, transgender women are killed so often in the U.S., it has been declared an epidemic. And because of this harsh reality, many queer and hetero activists are attempting to recenter LGBTQ voices in the movement for black lives. Sean Seifawal, an intersex activist based in Atlanta, Georgia, believes we must remember the creation history of BLM. I feel like out of the Black Lives Matter movement, there were many Black, queer, and trans leaders, you know, um, who came out of this movement. And I think the mainstream, again, like people are willing, because now Black Lives Matter is tied to capitalism, it's tied to incentive and revenue. I think people 
now are about Black Lives Matter, but they don't get the point that it was black queer people fighting for all black lives, right? And again, people want to embrace Black Lives Matter and still want to disrespect black trans women. And it's just like, if you're trying to do that, then you're not getting why this battle was fought. Because the organizers were very clear that this was a very inclusive movement that would center the leadership of black, queer, and trans people. This is a pivotal time. We are experiencing a global pandemic, an economic crisis that has disproportionately impacted people of color, and a nationwide uprising for racial justice. Many activists believe we must build on the urgency of this moment. In the midst of Black suffering and the fight for Black lives, now is the time to leave personal biases behind and unify in shared struggles. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson, reporting from Oakland, California. You've been listening to Activism and the Fight for Black Trans Lives While Making Contact. This show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to Activism and the Fight for Black Trans Lives on Making Contact. On July 27th, a black trans woman named Kowisha Hardy was shot and killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Her death was the 25th reported murder of a trans person or gender nonconforming person in the U.S. this year. It happened just weeks after a march for black trans lives was held in New Orleans. While the trans community has been marching to protest the senseless killing of their sisters, they have also been organizing against a state law used to target trans women for decades, the Crime Against Nature Law, known shorthand as CANS. Reporter Mick Schutzer takes us to New Orleans to find out why repealing this law is so important to black trans women in Louisiana and what is being done about it. The city of New Orleans goes all out for Halloween. We're not just talking trick-or-treating. Think Mardi Gras with a spooky twist. And it has been this way for a long time. In the 80s, when I was a child, you know, the city of New Orleans was very, 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 very busy. I mean, you saw everybody. And that just was a holiday that I just really enjoyed. That's Wendy Cooper. She grew up in New Orleans, loving Halloween. Any costumes as a kid that you Of course. What were the best ones you had? A ghost. (laughs) Every year I was a ghost. Every year I was a ghost, I used to just take my mother white sheets and just put it over my head. We couldn't afford any costumes. So, you know, I but when I first met Wendy, it was summer. Hot and humid. Halloween was still months away. I sat down with Wendy in her air-conditioned living room, disturbed only by that beep you hear when a smoke alarm has low battery. You might hear that. Wendy lives in the trendy garden district of New Orleans. Actually, I'm from this neighborhood. Prior to this subdivision being recreated, I mean, it used to be a housing development where a lot of poor black individuals was living at, at one point in time. Wendy is the youngest of nine kids, and growing up, 
she had big plans. When I was small, I wanted to be a teacher. But as I got older, you know, that kind of shifted. And I wanted to become a judge. Other things were shifting for Wendy as well. And eventually, she came to understand something really big about herself. I am a woman of trans experience. And I remember um, having a conversation uh, with my family, which is my mother and my sister, and I was telling them that I, you know, was ready to live my truth. Wendy felt accepted by her mom and her sister. But my sister was more of, you know, if you, uh, if you transition, you know, it's a lot of things that you're going to have to face, you know, like with discrimination. And it's going to be hard for you to get a house. It's going to be hard for you to get employment. It's going to be hard for you to access a lot of things or whatever. In spite of her sister's fears, Wendy was optimistic. It's like I heard her, but it was like the information that she was telling me was like going through one ear and going out the other. And for a while, things seemed okay. Until one night in 1999. I was on my way to go meet some friends at a club, and I was stopped by an officer. Uh, the officer, me and the officer began to engage in conversation. And when we was engaged in, in conversation, you know, then the officer began to, you know, tell me things about he was interested in me and also using language like oral and anal. They discussed sex, and that conversation turned out to change Wendy's life forever. After we had that conversation about five or ten minutes into our conversation, that's when he charged me with the crime against nature law, and I still didn't know like what was the meaning of it to like after um, I was convicted of the charge. Wendy didn't know about the Crimes Against Nature Solicitation Act, a law implemented in Louisiana in 1805. Historically, the CANS or the Crimes Against Nature Solicitation Laws were written in such a way that if a person got picked up for solicitation of prostitution, there was a specific subset of criminal charge that you could receive if you were performing or alleged to be engaging in what was considered a crime against nature. That included same-sex interactions, sodomy, and bestiality. That's Nicholas Height. He's a lawyer in New Orleans whose firm specializes in working with LGBTQ people in Louisiana. Height explained that unlike prostitution charges, which are considered a misdemeanor in the state, a crime against nature is a felony and it comes with the added penalty of having to register as a sex offender. So the way that that was written, it disproportionately impacted LGBTQ folks who may or may not be engaging in sex work. Especially black trans women, like Wendy Cooper and Kenesha Harris, who also lives in New Orleans and works with the queer community. The crime against nature law is, is being used to target LGBTQ folks, especially black trans women, who are forced to do, you know, commercial sex work. You know, because like at that time, that's what I was doing. At that time, I was doing commercial sex work. Like Wendy, Kanisha didn't know about the Crimes Against Nature solicitation law until she was arrested and charged with it. I sat in jail for about 35, 45 days. I was, I was in jail when I looked up the law. They had a law book. They had a law book laying around, and I just saw having to pick it up. And I looked up the charge that I was on, Crime Against Nature, and I just sat there and I looked at it. I sat there, I looked at it, and I find it, and I was like, wait, what? Like, 
I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I really could. I really couldn't believe it. Like, because the, the, the main thing that really got me was upon release from jail, you have to register as a sex offender. Like, a sex offender tag, really? Having to register as a sex offender is one of the ways that trans women convicted of a crime against nature are treated differently than heterosexual cisgendered sex workers convicted on charges of prostitution. For Wendy Cooper, registering as a sex offender was the end of her dream of being a teacher and a judge, even though she now has a master's in criminal justice. When you're a sex offender, it's, you know, your life is very limited. You're not allowed to participate in, like, holidays that interacts with children, Christmas and Halloween. But since I had to register, that enjoyment kind of went away because I was so busy focusing on that, I can't be around children. <laughs> I used to turn my lights off. I used to go inside. You know, if I had a job, I will work, and I would just go home. I just didn't want to interact because I was afraid, you know, being a woman of trans experience. You know, if someone was to see me walking with a kid, or an officer was to see me walking with a kid or whatever, they could have stopped me and ran my name through. It was like every time Halloween came, it was like this anniversary of stay inside, don't go nowhere, don't interact with kids. And this was like a repeated situation like every year. Louisiana isn't the only state that still has anti-sodomy laws on the books. In spite of a 2003 Supreme Court ruling that deemed these laws unconstitutional, more than a dozen states managed to hold on to them. Slowly but surely, citizens are challenging these laws in court. In Louisiana, Wendy wanted to be a part of that process. She was a plaintiff in the 2011 case Doe v. Jindal that led to the Crimes Against Nature law changing. That particular statute was deemed unconstitutional. The disproportionate discrimination of that law was recognized, and so it was overturned. It was followed by a class action lawsuit which meant hundreds of people were removed from the sex offender registry. So you might be thinking, great, a victory. But that is not the end of the story. Folks who have that conviction on their record continue to have that conviction on their record, despite the fact that they were convicted under an illegal law. Like Wendy, even though she is no longer a registered sex offender. Anytime someone goes in for a job, Increasingly, anytime somebody applies for housing, a background check is run, and that's going to show up on a background check. And a person may not even have an opportunity to try and explain what that conviction means, that that conviction is actually wrong, that that conviction was illegal. What will happen is someone will see that conviction, they'll Google what a CANS conviction is, they'll see that it's not only solicitation of prostitution, but also crimes against nature, which means that folks who have those kinds of convictions are automatically going to be disqualified from meaningful employment. They're going to be disqualified from our already really limited housing opportunities in New Orleans. And it could potentially impact their access to public benefits as well. Wendy has experienced this firsthand. Although it's expunged, certain agencies can see it. Like, I have a master's degree, right? If I want to go apply, if I want to go teach at a school, Board of Education have the right to see that conviction, right? Or if I wanted to go take the bar exam, right? The Bar Association are allowed to see that expunged conviction, right? I'm, un I'm unable to utilize, you know, my degrees to further my career. 
Wendy's story raises a question that people are asking about the decriminalization of marijuana as well. How do we deal with all those people convicted of nonviolent drug offenses who still have that on their records, or worse, are still sitting in prisons across the country? How do we address the people who are still paying for an old way of thinking? And like the war on drugs, the crime against nature law has disproportionately affected black folks. According to the Center for Constitutional Rights, at the time of Doe vs. Jindal nearly 10 years ago, 80% of people convicted on crime against nature charges were black. Wendy is one of those people. I recently got on the phone with Andrea Ritchie, who is one of the lead attorneys on the Doe vs. Jindal case and the class action lawsuit. She told me she can understand why the legal victories were not enough. The name of this conviction is stigmatizing. I think there's a reason to get rid of it for that reason, particularly because the police are still choosing to charge black women, trans women, and gay men with a crime against nature by solicitation and charging folks who don't fit into those demographic categories with prostitution, and so the stigma is attaching to a particular group. This, Richie told me, does not happen by chance. There's a real desire to punish people like for being who they are and also for surviving in whatever way they're able to in an economy that excludes them. And it's literally an effort to say, to brand people as inherently deviant and unworthy. Until the 2020 Supreme Court decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, it was legal to discriminate against trans people in the workplace in more than 50% of states. And the unemployment rate for trans Americans is several times higher than the national average. For some trans folks, sex work is the only viable option. Black trans women, like Wendy and Kenesha, face both gender bias and structural racism. At the intersection of discrimination and oppression, black trans people are four times more likely to be unemployed than the rest of the population. But Wendy has a job. She works at an organization called Operation Restoration, created by and for formerly incarcerated women. There, Wendy leads a campaign to repeal the crime against nature law altogether. Last summer, Wendy and her team planned a rally against the crimes against nature for the weekend of Southern Decadence, a New Orleans festival for the gay and lesbian community that culminates in a parade through the French Quarter. They chose that weekend for a specific reason. We feel like it was important to have it around Southern decadence and show them the difference between like the disparities that white gay cis male have to face in black trans women and, and for them it was a time for partying. For us it was a time for advocating and, and, and trying to get that same justice as any other person. Their cause is serious but Wendy and her crew weren't going to let this be a boring affair. Their march would be as festive as the Southern Decadence Parade. Well, actually, me and Malaya, we was, we was in Party City, and we was just getting a few things like um, decorations and stuff for the march. And so as we was getting like decorations, we began to come up with some type of theme. And we was like, if you have a march, you have to you have to stand for something. So what we did was we, we, we came up on how our system begins, like LGBTQ individual, where our system begins and it starts from the church. And so we have individuals who was dressed up as like a pastor and uh, we had a person who was dressed up as um, uh, uh, 
a Bell's rhyming. We had an individual who was um, they was dressed up more like a, a a parent, right? And then me and and Milan and and Kaneen and Jasmine, we was dressed as um, inmates, um, and so we felt like it was very important for people to see like okay this is our system this is what we go through daily lock me up like a like a cage an animal they was about to lock me up like an animal for something i did not do instead of me being angry instead of me being bitter i decided to fight mm. I decided to fight. I took all my experiences that I went through while I was in jail. And now I'm at a point where I am going to fight for my sisters that are incarcerated. The girls that are not here to stand with us. I want you to be there for us. Stand for us. If you see a trans woman in trouble, be there for us. Don't sit here and wait till the last minute and a girl is gone. Don't wait until the last minute when a girl is gone. Because you never know who or what potential you'll see in that person. Thank you. Dressed in an orange prison jumpsuit and holding a megaphone, Wendy led a crowd of over 100 protesters down North Rampart Street in New Orleans. The protest attracted local media and was attended by representatives from the mayor's office. We're going to close this out. We have one more person, and it's Eliza uh, from the mayor's office. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. But not all of Louisiana's leaders are on board. When the state House of Representatives last voted on whether or not to repeal the law in 2014, legislators voted in favor of keeping it, 66 to 27. At the time, State Representative Valerie Hodges was the most outspoken defender of keeping the law, saying it was a vote of conscience to keep it in place. When I reached out to Hodges' office recently to find out her stance on the law today, I was told she could not give a statement due to other pressing concerns related to COVID-19. Her staff told me, it's not on the radar right now. A privileged position that those of us who are cisgendered and white can afford to take while the law's existence has daily impact on black trans women. Nevertheless, there's reason to be hopeful that things might finally change, even with the pressing concerns of COVID-19 demanding attention from state legislators. And that's because there's new momentum as Wendy's effort intersects with Black Lives Matter and movements to defund the police that have grown following the murder of George Floyd. Here's Andrea Ritchie again. More that as a society, we're in a conversation right now about why we're putting money into policing instead of addressing issues by a different means because policing is producing violence, not preventing it. I think there's definitely a, a moment where we're saying we shouldn't be responding to people trading sex with criminal penalties, I think there's more and more conversation about whether it makes sense to put more money into policing people in that situation or whether it makes more sense to put money into what they need. An alternative to policing could have changed Wendy's life 
and Kanisha's too. So today, they are both creating those alternatives, working to support queer youth and to change the world that young people grow up in. And of course, still marching for the repeal of the Crimes Against Nature law and for Black trans lives. Reporting from New Orleans, I'm Meg Schutzer. Again, you've been listening to Activism and the Fight for Black Trans Lives on Making Contact. We want to hear from you. What are your thoughts about trans activism and the demands that black trans lives also be centered in the larger narrative of policing of black bodies? Join the conversation on Facebook and on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. To get a podcast or download past shows, log on to radioproject.org. I've been your host this week, Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening.